0: How many of you guys like tests? How many of you guys like interactive teaching segments, like when the instructor's up front and he's asking you questions and you're supposed to engage with that? Some of you are crazy and you like it. I think it's interesting in our text this morning, we're going to watch Jesus do that particular thing where he's actually engaging his guys and I... I'll be honest, I'm, I'm one of those guys that when these things happen, I tend to like to be at the back of the class. I try and find the spot. And, and you know you can't be in the very back, right? Because if you're in the very back row and you have an honorary professor, then they go after you in the back row because they know you're trying to avoid it. So you got to find that middle ground where you just won't quite be noticed. You Notice we don't have any chairs behind. Well, I guess we do have one right behind the post that you can't see. I think my tendency is to do that, especially when I'm, when I'm doing like meetings where they have pastors gathered, I think partly because they think I'm supposed to be a professional, so I'm supposed to want to talk in those settings, and I tend not to. In fact, I believe that if I was hanging out with the disciples, I probably would have been hanging out at the back of the line with Judas when Jesus began his conversation with the guys going, <laughs> watch, Pete's going to say something this time. It probably would have been me. In our text this morning, we're going to actually watch Jesus talking with and instructing his disciples, and I'll be honest, I just I love the fact that God does what he does with the text and, and how things line up and how they fit together even in the cultural or the, 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 um, the, the preaching schedule that God does for me. This week's text was a bit of a challenge for me, so as usual, I'm going to let you guys carry the brunt of that with me as best as possible. But I will tell you, I'm a, I'm a little nervous. I didn't sleep really well last night because I feel like I'm supposed to do something, and we'll see if it happens, that makes me a little bit uncomfortable, and I'm assuming it'll make one or two of you uncomfortable, um, but I think I'm supposed to, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. Let's jump into the text this morning. In Mark chapter 8,
1: verse 27. And Jesus went on with his
0: disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? and peter answered him you are the christ and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him you know that's a small it it's a small passage it's a small section of scripture and, and the question is, is pertinent and it's powerful. Who do you say that I am? But The first thing I want, I want us to grab and notice is that as we are going through the text, Jesus is, is maintaining a standard, of a, pro, a process of teaching that He normally does in, in, in His life. And it's a pattern that He uses regularly, and He challenged us to do the same. Um, the first thing that we see in this is that Jesus is teaching as they go, Right? They're walking somewhere. It's probably a smaller group. My guess is it's it's a little bit more intimate group at this point in time with his disciples. But they're teaching as we go. And I think sometimes in our culture, we've got this thing backwards where we think that How we need to do this church thing or how we need to do discipleship is we've got to put the good classes together and get everybody to show up to a class. And there's nothing wrong with the class. That stuff's really good because there's teaching and development that we need to do in that. But Jesus, he teaches in the process of life. And where do we see that? He actually challenges us to do that in the Great Commission, right? Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And oftentimes, I think we've thought about the go as being the command, but the command is actually tied to making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to observe or obey. The go is, it's in our going. It's as we go, as we do life. Jesus is modeling that here for his disciples. He's teaching them in route to another lesson. That's the craziest part with Jesus, right? It's never one lesson and done. He's teaching them on the way to another lesson. Isn't that a great learning? Don't you guys, get, guys just get tired of that? Don't, at some point, don't y'all get tired of that? It's just the truth. There's a point at which we're like, okay, can I have a break? Just done for a bit. I believe honestly that the style of teaching is very, very important. It models a lifestyle of discipleship. I think it helps us to understand that the whole body of Christ is designed by God to be engaged in the discipleship process. That it's not for the professionals to do, it's for each one of us to engage and do together. As we go we're making disciples, baptizing, and teaching them to observe or obey. We can do that in every aspect of our life, every moment, every place. The conviction in my heart is that I could do this better. Right? You guys know one of the great challenges of the church? We we just experienced it. It was a wonderful thing. We get busy doing church, right? We do. We get busy doing church. How many of you are glad the the holidays are over? Don't raise your hands because some of you are going to get hit. I'm glad the holidays are over. I'm tired. It was busy. It was a great season. There was awesome stuff that happened. But we get busy doing church stuff during holiday seasons. In fact, our staff were joking about it, going, man, we can't wait for Monday. What's so excited about Monday? Nothing.
1: It's so cool.
0: I think we could do this better. We could take a lesson from Jesus in his style of teaching and understand that it's as we go, we teach, we make disciples, we baptize, and we live out this truth. It's interesting, in this process of their walking, Jesus asks them two questions. Now, his first question, I would guess if it was me and he was asking me, I'd be like, who? Okay, I can answer that one, right? Who do people say that I am?
1: And we're okay with that. Who does the world say that Jesus is today? Oh, what's that?
0: Let's hear it. A lot of different things, right? He was, some people say he's a good man. Some people say he was a prophet. Some people say he was nothing. There's all kinds of different views about who Jesus of the Bible is. Well, Jesus asks his disciples, Who do the people say that I am? And their responses are. I think pretty cool and interesting. The first one that we have is John the Baptist, right? And then we see or Elijah or others. Uh, in in fact, we'll look here in just a second and see that Jeremiah is added into that. But I thought to myself, so what is it about? Why, why would they say these things? What's so big? What's the big deal? Well, we need to understand something a little bit about what they're doing, and and that is that they're using. Some of them are actually using Scripture. They they have these are biblical answers except for maybe John the Baptist. I think John the Baptist was a little bit more of King Herod and some paranoia, right? Um, Because somehow John the Baptist was back, and he understood John the Baptist to be a man of God, and he was living in opposition to that, and he got trapped because of the sins of his flesh, trapped him in a moment, and he ended up killing John the Baptist, even though he was trying to protect him. And so we have this idea that John the Baptist was raised from the dead, and or not John, the, uh, yeah, John the Baptist, and, and Herod was worried about that, and I'm sure there were others, but when we look at Elijah and the prophets, it's interesting, because if you turn in your Bibles back to
1: Malachi, Malachi 4, text says this,
0: Malachi 4, 5, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the
1: great and awesome day of the Lord. Huh. That's not bad theology, right?
0: They're seeing all these miracles happen, stuff that's outside of normal expectations, things that other prophets haven't done, and they're going, this must be Elijah. I kind of get that.
1: Look in Deuteronomy, we're going way back. Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is Moses speaking to the to the people
0: and he says this, the Lord in uh, Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired for the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, "Let not Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. Whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him." So there's some evidence even of these prophets. There's, this would be a reasonable thought process. And we see in Matthew chapter 16 that even Jeremiah is listed. Matthew chapter 16, verse 14. Same conversation that, that we are in in the text, and this is Matthew's account. And in the book of Matthew it says, And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. I think that it's important, and it, it's a challenge to us at times to, to remember that the, the people that are saying Elijah and the they were looking for the coming Messiah. They had their eyes on the, the, the Torah, the, the teachings of what we call the Old Testament today, and they were looking for him. I, I don't want. We we shouldn't. I don't think look too uh, down on them too much because they had their eyes on that. They were actually looking at Scripture and looking at the things that were happening, going, could this be him? Could this be the coming Messiah, this promised King that's going to set all things right? And then Jesus turns and looks to his disciples and say, Who do you say that I am? And I love Peter's response, right, because he gets
1: it right. And he says, the Christ. He says, the Christ. John chapter 4, in verse 25. We kept, we're at
0: the, the woman at the well, and, and the reason, I just want you to see this, that, that this is part of the teaching. It's part of the Jewish tradition and, and the teaching of the time. Uh, The woman at the well is describing to Jesus as he's talking to her about uh, worship and and who the Son of God is in this living water. Uh, In verse 25, the woman says this to Jesus, "Um, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. So the teaching, the, the biblical truth around this is that the people were watching for Him. They were anticipating him. And we read just last week who they were anticipating, right? Or two weeks ago. Sorry, I'm off. Look at how quick the time flies. In our Christmas passage, we read in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, we read who was coming, who this promised king was. It says, For. They were looking for the Messiah. They anticipated the come of the Messiah, this anointed one, the Christ. And listen, it's a big deal. This is, you know, we, we might not think of somebody being anointed as a really big deal. Uh, in fact, we might think that's a little weird Uh, because we kind of don't have that tradition. But King Herod in Matthew chapter 2, if you go back and read the account of King Herod in Matthew chapter 2, he believes it's so significant, so important, that he actually executes all male children two years and younger that match up with the time that the wise men came and told him about Jesus being born. Is that a big deal? If the king goes through and kills all the two-year-olds and younger males... He clearly saw something significant in the prophecy of this coming child, this coming Christ, the Messiah. And whatever testimony the wise men brought created such a stir for him and his kingdom that he went out and killed all of the two-year-olds and younger males in that kingdom. That's a significant thing. The Christ, coming Messiah matters. What's interesting to me in this, and, and, and I, I love this, this idea, is that those who are watching for it, each of them came with a biblical truth, right? Did you see that? Each of them came with a text that they could go back to and say, see, this is
1: why I believe that this is who it is. Isn't that cool? More theological debate. Yay.
0: So what's the lesson that we see? I, I believe that one of the key things that we see that Jesus is teaching His disciples is who Christ is, who the Christ is, matters. It matters. It's a big deal. It's actually the deal. How often do we see in our culture the attempts to disprove who Christ was? How often do we see in religious history the attempts to disprove who Christ is? I believe that who Christ is matters, and that's one of the key lessons. What I love about this process is, although most had biblical answers, they all missed it to a point, right? The Jews that were looking at him as being Isaiah or a prophet, they were looking towards the end. They were looking to the day of the, the Lord, this great day of the Lord, which is a real challenge because if you weren't actually following God, if you weren't actually being obedient to the law at that point in time, when, Jesus, when God came back and brought justice, you were still going to be guilty. But in their mind, they were the true followers, and they were anticipating his return. They were excited about the end coming to restore this kingdom and put everything right as they thought it should be. And, and I believe Peter was in the same, the same boat. In fact, I believe here shortly we're going to be in the text where, where we watch the boys start arguing about who's going to be the most important in his kingdom. Because although they saw him as the Christ, they saw him as the Isaiah 9-6 Messiah, not the Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who it says will be crushed for our iniquities, will be pierced
1: for our transgressions. And even references that he will die. Following in obedience to his Father.
0: I said earlier that we could do better. I believe I could do better in being a disciple of Jesus and following Christ. As I was wrestling with uh, this next year, I, I heard a, 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 on the Christian radio broadcast, which sometimes I, I giggle when they say dumb things because they had time to think about it.
1: And they still said dumb things. So I associate with them. I feel camaraderie. But
0: This goofball on the radio, he said, you know, last year I didn't make any plans and it went pretty good. So this year I'm not going to make any, any goals for my life. And we'll just see what happens.
1: And I thought, huh, is that what God's called us to?
0: Just to throw it all up in the wind and hope it works out? Is that what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? That can't be what it means. So I look back in, in this year for me, and I look back at the things that I've anticipated or I was hoping would be accomplished in 2019, I could honestly say that there are some things I feel like were successful, were good things. And there were other views or ideas or dreams that I had that that I didn't accomplish. Some of them physical, right? I mean, how many of us have home projects that we're hoping to get done and and they don't go the way we want them to or how, you know, how many of us have physical things that we're trying to get accomplished that we set on our, our target list of things for this year and, and, and we may have made them or not? Some of them are spiritual. Some of them were probably even emotional and, and relational in, in regards to my bride and, and my, my marriage and my relationship with my boys. The question is, how do we take this year? How do we move from where we're at and not do what the radio guy says and just, nah, let's not make any plans. Let's just see what happens. But how would we intentionally follow Jesus this year? And I think that the key thing for me, what I've been wrestling with is if who Christ is matters, if the text that we claim to believe is truly the Word of God, then in my heart and in my mind, it comes down to this, that we would put things in order. We would put first things first. What does that mean for you and for me? It means that if Christ is first, then
1: He wouldn't be last in my schedule of priorities, right? I think that's safe to say. Now, I will be honest with you, that's costly.
0: Is it not costly? Because if I really believe this, if I really take this to to, to be the truth that I'm claiming, then being in his word, being in prayer, being in fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ would be a priority to me. Above many other things. I don't know if you guys have got a busy schedule, but I have a busy schedule. I have things to do. Plans, dreams, I have all kinds of stuff that I want to get accomplished. I think it would require some sacrifice. When we think of putting first things first, I think Jesus probably lays it out the most clear for us. In Matthew 22, Jesus lays out this case while he's being grilled by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law trying to trap him. He gives us this truth. Matthew 22, starting in verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the greatest and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Uh, you see how he's doing this? He goes, right, he goes back to asking them a question. He's, he's teaching, he's challenging right here in the midst of this discussion, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David, he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David called him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any
1: more questions. Jesus took the best that they had in debate
0: in the law of the word and he silenced them with one question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Who Christ is matters. I think the challenge... For us is putting first things first, putting God on the throne. And isn't it funny that he ties in the rest of y'all
1: into my spiritual life? Do you see that? Love God and love others. Turns out I have a problem loving others. Who to thunk?
0: Turns out I'm selfish, and I like my stuff, and I'd prefer that y'all didn't like my stuff. Or my place on the road, or my time wherever. You know, I think small water heaters was probably one of God's greatest strategies in teaching us to love other people. At what point in your family were you the last one in the shower? In the name of Jesus, I'm going to take a cold shower and
1: love my children. What does it require for us to put things right? What does it require for us to put first things first?
0: I don't think there's a better time in our
1: history for the church To get this right. I apologize because this is where I was struggling this week. Romans 12. 1 and 2.
0: I believe that to put things in order, to put first things first, it requires us to surrender. To surrender my dreams, my passions, my preferences, my needs, my wants. The Jews even had to surrender their interpretation of the law of who Jesus was, right? They had to give, they had to actually let that go because when they looked at it, they saw the coming king.
1: And what a great disappointment that had to be for them to watch him die on the cross. Where's our hope now? Where's our scriptural interpretation of this promise?
0: Paul says that. By the mercies of God, we should present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to get. You know the problem I, we, in our elder uh, team, we've talked about this. You know the problem with a living sacrifice?
1: Always oh, getting off the idol or off the altar. It's hard to keep them on there. Any of you butchered chickens? Oh, man we had uh, one Thanksgiving,
0: we were donated a 42-pound turkey. Now, I need you to understand something. It was 42 pounds after we took the guts out and the head off and the outer extensions of the wings. It was 42 pounds that we put into the oven. By the way, they don't make anything to cook that in. We had all kinds of messes. But when we put him up to the chopping block, he just bent over. Oh, you know, normally we, they'd be up there and you, they, they couldn't touch. So, When we began the process, the thing was so strong, it actually threw my oldest son off of his back. A living sacrifice can be a really difficult thing,
1: and yet that's what God has called us to be. You know what I think the problem is? It costs too much. Imagine the Jews having
0: to let Jesus, having to accept that Jesus was the suffering servant, not the coming king. They had to, they had to let go of the idea that they were going to see the kingdom restored, that they were going to be back in power, back on top, out from under the, the imprisonment and the captivity of other powerful nations.
1: thinking to myself, what would it cost me to really surrender, to really put Jesus first? Could it cost a car? Could it cost health? My house? My career? That's kind of odd. But if this discipleship thing is, as you go,
0: make disciples, baptize and teach, wouldn't it stand a reason that it could
1: cost me everything that I'm dreaming of in this life? I think it's interesting that so many Christians that
0: are reading Old Testament texts, prophecies, and and wrapped up in Revelations, I think there's almost a tendency for us to want that to happen, to to become obsessed with that happening, that maybe before, before I die, Christ will return. You guys, that's a beautiful thought. At some point, for the millions and millions of people that are going to hell, not so much. But at some point, that's an amazing thing, but what if Jesus says, no, I just, I just want you to die to yourself for the remainder of
1: your days, and you're not going to see me come back? What if he says that, no, I don't want you to live in comfort. I don't want you to have all of the money. I want you to trust me daily. A lot, although it's free, I believe it'll cost us our life as we see it, as we dream it. I believe that part of the challenge when we ask the question is who do you say that Jesus is? As we, like the disciples, struggle to accept him for what he says he is. I want to challenge us in one area. Those goofy disciples, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. If you were a child of God here today, you do. So what's my excuse? At least without the Holy Spirit, I could say, hey, I'm as dumb as Peter. But according to the word of God, I have the Holy Spirit. He's teaching me
0: these things. And he's directing my steps and my thoughts. He's interpreting the word of God at times in my life when I don't understand what it means.
1: I think the challenge that I'm wrestling with is what does it look like if I say, Okay, God, my life is forfeit for your will and your purpose. Am I afraid that he's going to ask me to give up
0: my car? Am I afraid that he's going to ask me to give up my home and my shop and all the stuff that I've been doing? Am I afraid that maybe he'll send me over to some mission field? Maybe I'll have to go back to to part-time work where we were dependent on God
1: showing up every single month to pay our bills. What is it that you would be afraid of surrendering your life to Christ for? I think
0: each of us have different things, and each of us learn in different ways. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to do something that I don't normally do, and it's I'm going to offer an opportunity, and I want to clarify this. We all learn in different ways. I'm a hands-on guy. I do better if I have a manual and a car sitting right next to me. So when it says, loosen this bolt, I go out and loosen that bolt. And then when it says that you should not have done that, I go out and, oh yeah, look, it didn't work. That's how I learn. So I'm kind of a tactile, got to touch it and do it. Some of you don't learn that way. Some of you, God does, he can give you instructions and you follow without having to do anything physical. And that's okay. I want to give you the permission this morning to do as God's calling you to do. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to open up an opportunity if you want to come forward and kneel with me because I'm a physical guy, so I'm going to do it. But you don't have to. I don't, this isn't about coming forward. This is about asking the question, who do you say that Jesus is? Is He truly the anointed Messiah, the King of kings, the Lamb of God, the creator of the world. If He's truly that, then to do this is only logical if we claim to be His children. To refuse to do this, in a sense, is some kind of folly. We must not really believe that that's who He is. So, what I'm going to ask you to do this morning, either in your seats or up front, tomorrow... Next week, whenever it is that you and the Lord have the time to
1: offer your life as a living sacrifice and say, God, it's not mine. Do with it as you see fit. So if you need to close your eyes, um,
0: if uh, if the worship team wants to come up, you guys can come up and, and be ready. But if you need to come forward and do the physical act, I want to invite you to come and join me. If you are going to sit in your place, sit in your place and and do the work with the Lord between you and Him and wrestle with this question, who is it
1: that you say that Jesus is? I know there's no altar up here because
0: ultimately we are the dwelling place of the Lord now. So we're the temple. We are his place of worship. Um, So we'll probably kneel towards the stage. I I don't know what else to do in that. Um, But we're not worshiping them. It's, It's towards
1: the Lord. So please understand that is what we're doing.